passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. My name is Jordan. I am one of our pastors here on staff. Um, I am normally in Spencer, uh, but I get the privilege of sharing with you this morning um, from God's Word. As we, uh, as we jump into this topic, I, I want to just begin with a story that took place this past week on, on Monday at our house. And my wife and I, we found ourselves uh, attempting to do the impossible on Monday night. And that was uh, to figure out what to make for dinner for our three kids that would be uh, some form of, of nutrition while also not being something that would receive just a, a whole host of complaints from our kids. And we knew this was a fruitless endeavor. We knew it was impossible. So we just decided to make something that we liked. And uh, we made this Mexican dish. And as I was dicing up onions and, and green peppers in the kitchen, my wife leans over to me and she says, um, she points at the recipe and says, hey, Jordan, just so you know, last time we had this, the kids really didn't like the salsa in it. Uh, so don't add salsa this time. And I instantly, the moment she said that, I was like, here's my chance. This is how I can thread the needle here of the impossible to try to have this successful and peaceful meal at supper. And so over the next 10 minutes or so, as kids are coming up to me and, and, you know, they got this fear and trepidation on their faces as they're like, dad, what are you making for supper? Um, one after the other, these, my kids approach me and, you know, what are we having for supper? And I say a burrito skillet. And, you know, that instantly, uh, that's, that's not what they wanted to hear. I don't know what they wanted to hear, honestly. Um, it, so, there's this little ritual that always takes place in our, our family uh, when it comes to supper preparation. What are we having? And you tell them what, what we're having. Have we had it before? And the response that we usually get is yes. No, the next response is, do you know what the next response is? Yes. All right. Yeah. Did we like it? Of course. And here was my chance, all right, to thread the needle between lying and telling the truth, I, I felt like I had to have more skill than, you know, the bomb squad trying to defuse a bomb here. How do, I, how do I thread this needle between these two? And so I said, well, last time you had it, you didn't like it, but you said that you might like it without salsa. So we're not making it with salsa this time. And each of the kids was skeptical, but thankfully they were willing to give it a shot. And then later that night, kids are in bed, and I'm thinking about what I have to preach on. Lying, deceit. And I just get to thinking, did I just lie to my kids? Did I massage the truth just enough to get what I wanted out of them? Even if I was lying or I was being deceitful, was it wrong because I had their best interests in mind? I wanted them to eat food. That's not, a, not an inherently bad desire, right? I had my own desires or my own wants in mind as well, my own peace of mind. And those are the types of questions that have been running through my head as I've been considering our, our topic for this morning, the heart of this morning's sermon, looking at how we can faithfully follow Jesus with our words Using our words to tell the truth. In other words, not using our words as a form of deceit. 
And we find ourselves in the midst of this sermon series on the importance of our words because words matter to God. And we saw last week why words matter to God so much. Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the reason why God cares so much about what you say is because God cares deeply about your heart. Our words oftentimes give us the clearest picture of what our hearts are like. What comes out of your mouth first bubbles up out of your heart. When you say something that you almost immediately regret, and you say, I cannot believe I just said that. It's those moments that Jesus says, they give us the clearest picture of what our hearts are actually like. And as we consider, continue this series, looking at the importance of our words, looking at how God has given us this incredible gift, uh, this incredible danger of the tongue, we, we see that telling the truth is, is crucial. And I don't know if there's any time in history that that's more true than today. Lying occurs on a daily basis today. Lying is almost second nature to our culture. And it starts with a child who can barely speak, but knows how to lie maybe unconvincingly, but to lie in order to cover their tracks. Today, we live in a world that doubts if knowing the truth is even possible or if it even exists. We live in a world where the, any sort of opinion that we disagree with, we just shout it down with fake news. And, and that's the culture that we live in. Pilate's words to Jesus in John, I think John chapter 18, what is truth? That's the, that's the, the, the cultural you know, mantra of our day. We live in an age where car companies will lie about their emissions. Government officials make promises that they never intend on keeping. People will lie about their ages. The applicants will embellish their resumes and on and on and on. What if we were different? What if God's people were altogether different? What if we were known in our relationships with others as a people of the truth. We're going to consider that topic this morning by looking at two questions. First, what is a lie? And then second, why does telling the truth matter to God? Let's go ahead and pray. God of truth, we ask that you would come, that you would speak to us, that we might hear and respond to the gospel. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish the necessary, but sometimes painful work of transformation in our words, that we would be a people who not only speak the truth, but who also rejoice in the truth. God, we ask that you would help us by being at work in each of us, that you would reveal to each of us the specific ways that we can more faithfully follow you, Jesus, that we would be a people of the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. All right, let's start by looking at this first question, what is a lie? And here's the definition that I'm going to throw out uh, that we'll keep coming back to time and time and time again this morning. Lying is any speech that will accomplish a desired result without any regard to its truthfulness. Let me say that again. Lying is any speech that will, re- that will accomplish a desired result without any regard to its truthfulness. That, that means that there's a whole spectrum of what lying actually is. Pastor Colin Smith, he's a pastor in the Chicago suburbs, helpfully describes falsehood like a railroad line. And maybe the last stop on the railroad line is this place where you commit perjury, uh, you lie in a court of law and condemn the innocent to death. And, And maybe not many of us have ever traveled to that part of the railroad line. We've never reached the end of the line. And yet we've all spent some time going from one place to another, one station to another on the, the railroad track of falsehood and dishonesty. Lying is any speech that we use to accomplish a desired result without regard to its truthfulness. Last week, we looked at the book of James, and we saw that James gave us two illustrations about the disproportionate power of the tongue. He said this, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. In both of these illustrations, the the bit in the mouth of horses and the rudder directing a ship, they're not just about, they are about, but they're not just about the disproportionate power of the tongue to its size. Notice that they also tell us about how the tongue is controlled by something else. The tongue is controlled by something else. In verse 4, it's explicit. The rudder is controlled by the will of the pilot. In the same way, there is something that will set the direction of your tongue. And we saw in Matthew chapter 12, from Jesus' words, that it's your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, here's what that has to do with lying. When we speak, each of us has a core commitment in our hearts. It's our number one priority that will set the direction for what we say. When we speak, we will either be committed to the truth or we will be committed to something or someone else. Consider just two examples from the Bible on lying that revealed this core commitment at work. First one is from 2 Kings chapter 5. Let me set the scene. 2 Kings chapter 5 tells us about this army general of Syria, one of Israel's enemies. He was suffering from this serious skin disease called leprosy. His name was Naaman. Through God's behind-the-scenes workings, this army general Naaman ends up in Israel in order to be healed of his disease. Elisha, the prophet, tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River. He just says, do this seven times. And this act of obedience, nothing special about the water, but this act of obedience will be a declaration of your faith, and it will lead to a miraculous healing on your part. And it takes Naaman some convincing, but after some convincing, he does so, and he is healed. For our intents and purposes, we're going to pick up in verse 15 on what takes place after his healing. Verse 15. 
Then Naaman returned to the man of God. That's Elisha. He and his, all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept a present from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So here's what happens. Naaman is, is healed. He's, he's blown away. He's overcome with gratitude in this moment. He actually wants to pay Elisha for these services. Uh, Elisha knows he didn't do anything. It was all God at work. What's more, he doesn't want to set a stumbling block up in front of Naaman so that way Naaman misunderstands what this God is like. And so he refuses a payment. Let's get down to verse 19. Elisha said to him, being Naaman, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied him, uh, tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent them in a way and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the, men when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. For our intents and purposes, there's a lot we could cover here. But the lie of Gehazi is found in verse 22. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men, sons of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Elisha said nothing of the sort. So why did Gehazi say this to Naaman? We're actually given the answer for his lie in verse 20. It says this, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, see, my servant has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Why does Gehazi lie? To get something from Naaman. In other words, Gehazi here is not committed to the truth. Instead, he's committed to himself. He wants something out of Naaman. Go back to the language of James chapter 3. What is the pilot that directs the, the course of, uh, of Gehazi's life, the, the course of his tongue? Well, it's this core commitment. Not to the truth but instead to greed, what he can get out of Naaman. 
Maybe there's also a little bit of retribution here against Israel's enemy, this, this leader of the army of Syria. Can't believe Elisha let him off the hook. Let's get something out of him, make him pay. There's something at the heart of Gehazi that rules his heart. It's not a commitment to the good, but instead it's a commitment to himself. There's a similar example in the New Testament book of Acts. Short story, I'll just uh, read all of it, or at least the first half of it. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a small part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. rest of the story actually tells us that his wife does the exact same thing, and the same thing happens to his wife. Now here, the the reason why they lie is not as explicit as it is in 2 Kings chapter 5, but it's relatively easy to understand. Acts chapter 4 tells us that it was a common practice in the early church to do whatever was necessary to meet the needs of brothers and sisters. And sometimes that included selling all of your land. And for some people, it meant giving away all of the proceeds to the church. Acts chapter 4 tells us about a man named Barnabas who does exactly that. And then verses later, we we encounter Ananias and Sapphira. We're supposed to read these two in connection. Ananias and Sapphira clearly saw what was taking place with Barnabas, this man who was spiritually mature, and they wanted to look the same way. And yet at the same time, they wanted to keep part of the money for themselves. In other words, they lied so that they could save face. The other night, I asked my kids, why do people lie? And they shared some excellent reasons that aren't just true for young kids. They're also true for us adults as well. Said people lie because they're afraid of getting in trouble. People lie because they want to cover up something that they did that was wrong. People lie so that they can get what they want. People lie because they want to tell people what they want to hear. And that's exactly the case with Ananias and Sapphira here, isn't it? Why did they lie? Because they knew what everyone else was doing, and they wanted to fit in. They lied in order to get what they wanted. This is why we defined lying here as any speech that will accomplish a desired result. That's the focus of lying. It's to accomplish a desired result. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. The focus of a lie is not the truth but what you can get out of your words. While not directly related to the tongue, I can't help but think of this famous Saturday evening uh, post cover from Norman Rockwell. Can we go ahead and throw that up? This picture here. This is an issue from 1936. And uh, I think it gets at the heart of lying here, this, this heart. Notice what's taking place in this photo. You see both the woman with her finger pushing up on the scale 
and the butcher with his finger pushing down on the scale. The desire here from each person is what they can get out of the other person. They're desiring a better deal, whether that is costing more for the butcher or costing less for this woman. And it's a funny, lighthearted way of conveying the, the countless ways that we may spin the truth in order to get what we want. But we look at this photo in the context of God's commitment to the truth, and we realize that the, the woman and the man are sinning against one another. They don't care about the other person. They don't care about what is right. They only care about what they want. They only care about themselves. Now, this, of course, this definition of lying, of course, opens up uh, our, our understanding of, of deceit and falsehood and dishonesty and lying to something that's far bigger than just telling a lie. I want us to just consider three areas of falsehood that we are tempted uh, to, to use our words to get what we want rather than a concern for the truth in addition to just outright lying. First one is this, deceit. Deceit is when we massage the truth, either only sharing certain aspects of it and omitting other parts or, or wording things in a way that might technically be true. But if there was an outside observer who, who saw the whole thing, they'd be like, that's, that's not right at all. That's not what happened. It's, it's not an accurate description of what took place. Cable news, oftentimes a prime example of this, not technically lying, but also not giving the full picture either. Growing up, my parents stressed how important it was for me to tell the truth. They told me, while we can't guarantee that you won't get in trouble if you do something wrong, we can guarantee you will get in more trouble if you lie about it and we find out later. And I took that seriously, except when I didn't. Now, I may not have lied or rarely lied to my parents, but whenever I needed to, I would tell them the truth without certain details included. Or I would word things in a way that would paint me in a favorable light in order to avoid trouble. We deceive ourselves if we think that we are being truthful when we present the truth in a twisted way so we come out looking good. Go back to the definition of lying. Lying is any speech that we use to accomplish a desired result without any regard to truthfulness. If we wonder whether or not we're guilty of deceit, it's time for a heart check. Ask yourself, am I sharing this information in a way to accomplish a desired result? Is it a commitment to the truth? If not, what is it? Then ask yourself, is there any additional information that if it were shared, it would change people's opinion or perception of what took place? Would change people's opinion and perception of me? Deceit, at its core, is the misuse of truth for a desired outcome. Second area is exaggeration. And if you are a fisherman, you've never done this before. I haven't, fished, I haven't fished in years, but I catch myself exaggerating all the time. I love a good story, but sometimes the truth isn't good enough. 
of a story, and so I will exaggerate. In order to get a laugh, or in order to impress people, or to catch people's attention, we can inflate the truth. I have a pretty good ability to read a room, and I know what will get a laugh. And with just one or two minor tweaks that will harm anyone, I will exaggerate the truth, and I can get the, the laugh that I'm looking for. When I uh, first became a pastor, I was incredibly self-conscious about my age. I was uh, 25. And I, I remember being really, really self-conscious of the fact that I didn't have a ton of experience. And so when I would tell these stories about my past, I would round up the number of years that had passed since those things would take place. So something that took place six years ago was uh, a little under 10 years ago. Or if something took place a year and a half ago, it became years ago this took place. I remember one particularly convicting moment after a sermon when someone approached me uh, and I'd shared about this time where I was uh, doing mission work in Guatemala on a, on a mission trip and someone said, what were you, 12 when you went to Guatemala? <laughs> Notice the, the heart behind this. When we exaggerate the truth, it is a form of speech that we don't really care about the truth. We just want to accomplish a desired result. Exaggeration fits the bill. Our concern isn't so much the truth. It's either a good story or something that makes us look better than we actually are. A third area is closely related to exaggeration. Flattery, and I would throw in white lies here as well. If gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face, Flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. Flattery is another misuse of the truth in order to accomplish our own ends, to accomplish what we want. Typically, we will use flattery in order to place people in relational debt to us so that they will feel obligated to repay us, either with compliments or flattery of their own, or in order to do something for us, or if there is an argument for them to be on our side. This, is, this idea of flattery is, is where the topic of little white lies comes in. I, I need to preface what I'm about, this example I'm about to share. I think babies are cute, okay? So I just want to say this is not me. But let's say you are someone who doesn't think newborns are cute. And let's say a friend of yours has a new baby and you meet the baby and you're like, well, what am I supposed to say here? I don't, it's, it's not this baby, it's just all babies. I don't really think babies are cute. What do you say in that moment? Do you, do you say it anyway? You say, oh, so cute. Do you tell them, I don't really think babies are cute. I don't, I don't recommend that. What about something different? You know, many times I think we use white lies as a way to avoid the hard work of actually engaging in conversation. We respond with this culturally expected response rather than looking for something uniquely truthful and gracious and complimentary in our speech. You meet that new baby and, and maybe you could compliment without flattery or without white lies and say, he looks just like you. Maybe don't say that if you don't think babies are cute. The other night, this past Sunday night, uh, was the Cherished Center's Cherished Daughters Dance and I was uh, getting ready uh, 
to bring my daughter. Uh, Crystal put this into practice, Crystal, my wife. She knows that I'm hopeless at uh, getting dressed for nice occasions. So <laughs> I came out and said, what do you think? And her response was truthful and gracious. Why don't we go back to the closet and look for something else? But not just that. She also said, I love this shirt. Why don't you try wearing that one instead? Truthful, but it took her a little bit more effort than a white lie. You see, when it comes to flattery and white lies, we must again go back to our definition of lying, examine our hearts. Am I using speech to accomplish a desired result without regard to the truth? Ask the Lord to help you use your speech in a way that will glorify him and build others up, not through falsehood, but with the truth. So that's our first question, first area. What is a lie? Now let's, let's look at why does this matter? Why does God care? Why does the truth matter so much to God? It, it, it does clearly matter to him. If you look at the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, God says that all liars will be included with, in, among those who are f- to face eternal judgment. Proverbs 6 lists lying as one of the things that God hates. So why does the truth matter to God? I think the Bible gives us two reasons why truth matters so much to God. One is a vertical reason. Another one is a horizontal one. First, truth-telling matters so much to God because God is a God of the truth. He is fully and utterly committed to the truth himself. You never have to wonder if God is going to be deceitful. If God is only using half-truths, if God is exaggerating, if God is painting himself in a good light. In Titus, Paul is talking about these promises that God has given to us that that are not yet here. And he, he runs to the fact that God never lies as the bedrock of our confidence that we can have in the promises of God. He says this, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises or promised before the age began. The same exact thing can be found in Hebrews. The author points to God's trustworthiness as proof positive of the coming promises of God, even when they're not yet here. Hebrews says this, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why does lying, telling the truth matter to God? Well, how can we possibly hope to please the God of truth if we don't take the truth as seriously as he does? Jesus declares the importance of the truth in the gospels. When he's connecting with his disciples, he's connecting the, the, the truth and true freedom and true discipleship. He says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, You are truly my my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A commitment to the truth in our speech in every moment shows our allegiance to the God of truth. But just as significantly, a disregard for the truth reveals altogether different allegiances 
Just a few verses later in John chapter 8, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Any form of lying from perjury all the way down to just massaging the truth so that way we look a little better in other people's eyes or to make the situations we find ourselves in a little less uncomfortable is, and this is going to sound really, really strong. But anytime we do that, it is satanic. That's what we see from the serpent in the garden. The reason why creation broke is because of deceit and lying. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the serpent's tactics. First in verse two, he misinterprets and casts doubt on the word of God. This question, did God really say? The serpent knows the answer, but he has ulterior motives. And so he conceals the truth in the question that he asks and in the assumptions that he makes about God's character. This is followed actually by an untruth from the woman in verse three. She rebukes the serpent, the serpent, which is good. And yet she gets half the truth. She's fallen for the lie about God's character. She says, God doesn't even want us to touch the fruit. That's not true. And she claims, even though this wasn't true, that God has made these kind of demands upon them. It's another untruth started by the deceit of the serpent and things begin to unravel. This culminates in the outright lie of verse four and five. The serpent rejects the truth of God's word and paints this new picture of life, of what he claims that things will be like, of what the truth actually is. He casts doubt on the character of God through deceit in verse two. And then he outright rejects the truth of God in verses four and five. And as we know, the rest is history. Why does, why does telling the truth matter to God? It's because he's a God of truth. There's another reason. God cares about the truth because truth is essential for our relationships with others. Truth is essential for your relationships with other people. Whether it's an employee and an employer or a husband and a wife or parent and child, you name it. Truth is the bedrock upon which any, any, workable relationship can function. Conversely, falsehood will erode away relationships. 
As the popular quote reminds us, a single lie discovered is enough to create doubt in every truth expressed. Of course, the truth on its own is not enough. Paul reminds us that we must speak the truth in love. Truth must be shared in a way that seeks the good of my neighbor. Truth is a powerful thing. It can be used to save, but many times people use it to kill. It can be a rescue device or a sword or a club. The best use of truth is when in love, we share it for the concern for our neighbor. Not as a way to prove that we are right. A scorched earth policy is never the right approach to truth. While reading in Ephesians this past week, I was struck by how all of Paul's commands concerning speech, there's a lot of them in in Ephesians 4 and even in Ephesians 5. All of Paul's commands concerning speech are rooted in this concern for relationships. How we treat one another, how we care for one another. Notice the heart behind Paul's concern for the truth when he's speaking to, when he's writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. First in 15, verse 15, he says, speak the truth in love. Why? Well, it's because we're in part of, we are part of the same body. We are bound together. Truth is essential for the people of God, but doing it in love is essential for the people of God as well. People, Paul picks up on this again, just a few verses later, verse 25, therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. Why must we be committed to the truth? It's because we are members of one another. As a part of the people of God, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to other people. And as such, you have to be committed to the truth for the sake of other people, doing it with love for other people. Paul says the same thing just a few verses later in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I think it's so important to include verse 30 there. Because this idea of grieving the spirit of God is tied into how we handle our words, how we treat one another with our words. What type of of words should come out of our mouths? Well, he says only talk that is good for building up, but this takes wisdom 
as Paul very well knows, because he qualifies this idea of, of only good that is for building up with as fits the occasion. Your speech must give grace to hearers. And again, it's not a sword that destroys. It's a balm that gives life. Significantly, as I said, Paul points out that if we don't do this, we might grieve the spirit of God. What a sobering thought. That the words that we say might grieve God himself. We might break the heart of God if we misuse our words with other people. What if we were committed to the truth because it's essential for our relationships with others? That's at the end of the day. Our charge as the people of God, we have to be a people who speak the truth. But not just speak the truth. Speak the truth for the sake of others and for the sake of our God. Your commitment to the truth or your lack of commitment to the truth, whether it is through outright lying or deceit or exaggeration or flattery or little white lies, reveals your allegiance. Our words reveal our hearts because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What if we had tongues that told the truth? What if in this erosion of truth today, what if we were a people who were known for their commitment to the truth? What if in a world that has weaponized the truth, we were known as a people who spoke the truth always with grace? always with love, always with a concern for our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help. Spirit, I ask for forgiveness for the ways that I have grieved you by not using my words as you have intended. Forgive me, God. Forgive each of us. Help us to be people of the truth who are committed to truthfulness, not committed to some other desire, other motive. So not use our words to get what we want from other people, but instead be committed to love and grace and truth. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.